This is an e-learning course brought to you by Contemplative Light. We are a community of spiritual teachers and writers, graciously offering our insight, experience, and most importantly, our love. We hope you enjoy your course. So in this lecture, we'll be touching on the life and work of, of the remarkable early medieval figure uh, who was to have such great influence as the, the medieval period stretches on of Richard of St. Victor, remarkable 12th century figure, contemporaneous with Hildegard of Bingen. So very little is known about Richard of St. Victor's early life. We have the information that's given us, tells us he was a Scottish priest who ended up on the outskirts of Paris. He was part of the, the uh, canons regular, or at the time would have been sort of your, your parish priest. But he grew to become the prior of the Augustinian Abbey of St. Victor, which was this influential center of learning in the early medieval period. Him and a fellow Victorine, St. Hugh, or Hugh of St. Victor, rather, was um, part of this movement of, of education in, in the monasteries. And so St. Victor was on the banks of the Seine River, just outside Paris, and part of their rhythm of life was keeping the regular hours of the divine office. That is, that intermittent prayer that monastics have throughout the day, sort of marked by specific hours, derived from, from the order of, of Benedict early on, and, and different monastic movements would usually start with a leader who developed an order of life, some regular rhythm, usually of daily prayer, the daily office, or the, the hours. And they were encouraged and facilitated study and intellectual endeavors. And this specific order became a, a center for scholarship and specifically the use and application of reason to analyze the spiritual life. We do know that Richard of St. Victor kept up regular correspondence back to England and that he was appointed to sub-prior, serving under an extremely poor administrator, though. And eventually, he appealed to Rome to have the Pope do something about this administrator who was the, the prior, who was misallocating funds and spending on sort of what, what he and others believed to be wasteful projects and being a poor steward of, of resources. So eventually, in fact, the Pope did intervene and installed Richard as the prior in, in 1162. There he stayed until his death uh, 11 years later. And, and was, was thought of as a much better administrator in that particular role. The, the work of Richard of St. Victor is, is mostly a collection of, of sermons about the contemplative and spiritual life. Later on in, in Dante's Divine Comedy, he places Richard of St. Victor as one of the 24 figures in the fourth heaven, the sun, along with other wisdom figures like Thomas Aquinas like uh, Solomon and Dionysius the Areopagite. And he, he's there among the students and teachers of wisdom. And in that 
canto in the Paradiso, as Dante is ascending up the different levels of heaven, they get to the fourth level, or the sun, in, in, in Dante's Paradiso. This canto is about wisdom and also reconciliation. To sort of visually demonstrate that, Dante and his guide Beatrice are at the center of this circle, this sphere, and like the sun, he sort of makes the comparison between the sun and wisdom, divine light. These, each of these 24 figures that he's de- he describes, including Solomon, Richard, St. Victor, are stand in equidistant space apart from each other in the round. And Dante and his guide are, are standing at the center, and the sphere is completed by these teachers and, uh, of, of wisdom, demonstrating sort of that, that each participates equally in, in this sort of divine truth. So Richard of St. Victor was very much part of this project to apply reason to the spiritual life. He's interested in systems and interested in contemplation, mystical theology, and then later dogmatic theology. And he wants to preserve this, this sense of relationship of reason and theology in, in this kind of early form, almost anticipating some of the scholastics that would come along. He, he wants to have some integrated whole, some form within which these disparate pieces can make sense. And, and what you get the sense from reading him and, and other uh, writers or teachers from that era like Hugh of St. Victor, that that was very much a part of their overall project was integration and kind of developing a certain systematic theology, but one that preserved a sense of beauty and not just logic. So in his mystical teachings, he develops systems. You can think of him as kind of a systematic, mystical theologian. He codifies, he systematizes, he taxonomizes, he orders. And he, in his writing, he interestingly uses the, the figure, the Old Testament figure of Benjamin, the beloved son of Rachel, who, you know, later be, out of which grew the tribe of Benjamin, as an emblem or a symbol of the archetype of the contemplative type. And his works were then named after Benjamin's. His first work is the Book of, of the Twelve Patriarchs, or Benjamin Minor. And that's largely about, specifically, the contemplative life and how to prepare the mind for contemplation. That there is some process of the application of reason as creating fertile soil for the contemplative type. That the two are not opposed, but really parts of, a, of an integrated process. And then his second work is the mystical arc, or... Benjamin Major. And that becomes a, a, a system of mystical theology in which he takes the, the sort of stages of the mystical life and integrates them into a whole. And then a third work, De Trinitate, or On the Trinity, uh, very much a book of dogmatic theology. And he's combining in that work sort of the two theologians Augustine of Hippo and Anselm into this kind of integrating into this meaningful whole. So what you get in in Richard of St. Victor is this early medieval teacher of structure, 
of symmetry, of disparate parts integrating into a meaningful, symmetrical, and therefore sort of beautiful whole. And this then became foundational for sort of the, the, the high medieval achievements. The uh, builders of the cathedrals who saw their cathedrals in its order as a kind of map of the divine created order itself, that through entering a cathedral, you are, it, it kind of symbolizes the order with which the world was created. The, the assumptions and, and the theological symbolism of the work of many of the cathedrals can be traced back to these, these writings of the, these early mystical teachers like Richard of St. Victor, who were trying to find a way of articulating a kind of sacred theology or sacred geometry through their writing, find a way to, t- to communicate this a principle of order in, in creation. Not just story, not just relying on myth, not, not relying on kind of the authority of church, the authority of scripture for uh, believers to kind of live within, but articulate the way in which that, is, that order is manifest in creation. And so you get this kind of early science in writers like Richard of St. Victor. And again, with, with Dante in the Divine Comedy, you, you very much get a sense of that, the, that, that order, that symmetry, those stages. There's so much sort of um, cross-reference and, and sense of perfection and architecture to that poem. Richard of St. Victor is one of those thinkers that paves the way for that aspect of, of medieval theology, but also work and art. A quote from, from Richard of St. Victor's work. What is the Holy Spirit's gift or mission, if not that of infusing due love? The Holy Spirit, then, is given by God to man when due love residing in the divinity is inspired into the human soul. In fact, when this spirit enters the rational soul, he inflames its sentiments with divine ardor and transforms it by communicating to it a character similar to his own in order to enable it to express back to its own creator the love it owes him. Actually, what is the Holy Spirit if not a divine fire? After all, every love is a fire, though a spiritual fire. That which material fire does with iron, this fire of which we are talking does with a sordid, icy, and hard heart. In fact, as soon as this fire enters, the human soul gradually puts away every darkness, every coolness, every hardness, and it becomes similar in every way to him by whom it is inflamed. By the effect of the flame of divine fire, the human soul burns up everything, blazes and is melted into God's love. According to the apostles' words, God's charity has been infused in our hearts by the Holy Spirit's work who has been given to us. And this kind of shows that aspect of Richard of St. Victor, who's very much 
the thinker, the the organizer, this kind of making distinctions and and developing theology. In in places like this, you can identify how he is a a unitive, in the sense that he is trying to demonstrate the unity inherent within creation itself, the order that is infused into creation. He's a, he much different than say a unitive like. Dionysius, for whom forms are to be transcended. So in that sense, Richard of St. Victor is a little more sort of in and of the world. And yet, lest we misunderstand that uh, Richard of St. Victor is purely about the application of reason to the spiritual life, another little more famous quote by by Richard of St. Victor is this one. Indeed, many things which we shall not be able to discover, either by the experiment of works or by the investigations of reason, we shall deserve to be taught by importunate prayer, by the revelation of divine inspiration. Again, we get this sense that reason is necessary. Experiment of works hearkens to kind of the, 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 the scientific method. So much of his writing is kind of infused with that sentiment. But there's also this component, this understanding that that thinking, that process can only get us so far and that there is yet another strand, another dimension to the spiritual life beyond that and, and that, that touching the divine still requires some openness of being through prayer, through you know the grace of God's revelation to us, rather than effort or application of reason. And yet, there is this relationship between effort and revelation that Richard of St. Victor touches on in this quote. This gift is from God and not of man's deserving. But certainly no one ever receives such a great grace without tremendous labor and burning desire. So this reinforces the, a, a central message among many of the mystics is that ultimately access to the divine, divine revelation is always a grace, always self-revelation, never achieved. And yet it will not come about if we are not diligent in opening ourselves to it, in, in a, a desire for God, in, in the inner work, or even the outer work. There's a sense in, in writings where, for example, Moses becomes the archetype, not as in Richard of St. Victor, Benjamin, but Moses climbed the mountain, and he received the Ten Commandments, and kind of communed directly with God on top of the mountain. So God approaches and yet, we still have to climb to the top of the mountain. There's this relationship between inner preparation, doing the inner work that cultivates a uh, capacity to receive divine gifts. And, and that's some of what Richard St. Victor is, is touching on here. But another quality of the writing of Richard of St. Victor that we don't want to gloss over or just dismiss and present him as a, a factory of inspirational quotes is his sort of philosophical cast of mind. And in, in Benjamin Minor, he does discuss kind of two kinds of contemplation and the relationship between contemplation and imagination. And, and here is one of a, a little more sort of rational quote 
The second kind of contemplation is that which assuredly exists in imagination, yet is formed according to reason and proceeds according to reason. This happens when we seek and find the reason related to those things that we turn over in imagination, or rather, having found and learnt it, we bring it into consideration with admiration. In the first kind of contemplation, we thus consider the things themselves. In the second, we undoubtedly examine, explore, and marvel at the reason, order, and disposition of these things, as well as the cause, mode, utility of any one of them. So here we're back to this kind of Aristotelian language of reason, order, cause, utility, mode, disposition. You want to make sure that this rationalizing and ordering of, uh, and systematizing of, of the, the world in, in, that, in the natural world and the created order is, is included as part of his project and consideration. So some key takeaways from the mystic Richard of St. Victor. For Richard, knowledge is not an end in itself, but a stepping stone to the mystical life. We cultivate uh, reason and understanding for a, a particular end, not as an end in itself, but to further open ourselves and cultivate fertile soil for, for uh, divine revelation. And then he has this geometry of the divine perfections, and in some ways he anticipates those achievements, as we stated, of, of the scholastics, of sacred geometry, of the, the, the architects, of the cathedrals, and in later poets like Dante. Richard of St. Victor was, was uh, primarily Trinitarian, and held that perfect divine love must be, and this is his, one of his key terms, condilection, which is mutual love shared with a third figure. Dilection is the other term, shared, love shared between two figures, but condilection, that for it to be truly divine, there has to be mutual love of a third, that that love is not just for and in, in with each other, but um, held in mutuality for that third, that it's not because of that sort of ego reinforcing. And then that supreme beauty demands a harmonious ordering of properties. And that contemplation as a, as a process of the divine alignment of the attributes and personality internally with the perfect divine nature. And so alignment is key in, in this very sort of ordered and structured mystical theology. And then also the centrality of charity, caritas, divine love in life and in his teaching. His understanding of, of the Trinity is that perfect charity is, is that which exists between three self-evident persons. This concludes our course. To learn more, please visit our website at www.contemplativelight.com. We look forward to seeing you again soon.